Okay, I'm talking. I have the song Tribute stuck in my head. You know, like the best song in the world, but this isn't that song. This is only a tribute. Oh, and shit, I actually st- accidentally hit record twice by mistake, so we're actually recording this. Uh, so, so our levels are good, okay. so let's get started. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? Please leave that in there. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk to you about things you should have learned in school but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes I make a little recording boo-boo at the start, and we pick it up. Yep. And it's me inexplicably having the song Tribute stuck in my head. But what was that? What was his band's name? It was Jack Black. Uh, Tenacious D. Tenacious D. I don't think I've heard that song in at least 10 years. I haven't. I've never heard that song. Oh, I'll play never it. seen that movie. I... It's not a movie. It's just a song. I thought, no, he's like, wasn't he a movie? And like Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny? Or was that? That might have been. The... Tenacious D already existed, I'm pretty sure. I had no idea. So, yes, kids, today we're talking about music history and the things you really should know from music history. Yes. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, sometimes you get a vaccine and you go into a coma for a weekend. We both got our COVID vaccines on Friday. which First was, round. Woo! Yes. So exciting. They were so efficient. Like, I actually messaged the board of the health department afterwards to thank them for it took less time, except for the required 15-minute waiting period to make sure you don't pass out like they do with a lot of vaccines. Um, it took less time to get in through this really big building and get our shots than it does to go into your average coffee shop and get a cup of coffee. Yeah, it actually took us, it literally took us longer to get coffee after this. It did. So <laughs> I felt pretty fine afterwards, but Austin came home and he looked at me after work and said, just so you know, there's going to be a case of man flu. <laughs> Yeah, and there was. Yeah, Austin's been asleep most of this weekend. I've been feeling pretty okay. I mean, I haven't been sleeping more than I usually do on weekends anyway, but I do have a wicked bruise at the injection site. But folks, we would and will be doing it again. Absolutely. I cannot wait. Yeah, we're really excited to, uh, after we get our second vaccine and then wait an additional two weeks and all that, to continue wearing our masks, but also... When we realize we're out of an ingredient we need for a recipe, that we're excited to be able to just run to the grocery store and yeah. not have to improvise. I know. It's going to be so nice. Yes. We are excited to keep wearing our masks, but also be able to do very basic things. Yeah. And maybe, maybe even go to a movie. I wanted to go see a movie. I don't even care what movie. Like, it could just be like Sonic the Hedgehog, still in theaters. I'd go see it. I would not. I do have some standards. You'd, you're please. And you're... we started dating because of Sh- Sharknado. Yes, we and did. And I still will not see uh, Sonic uh, the Hedgehog. Uh, Sharknado and tequila. Yeah, and tequila. But that's not the point of the episode today. Although, Sharknado, if you have not seen it, you really should. It's so wonderfully bad. There are like six of them now. And Tara Reid just saying it's like, yeah, it's like in the movie called Shark. It was like it had a different title. Then they renamed it Sharknado. It's like, oh god, this is gonna ruin my career. And she was on vacation when it came out, and like her her phone started blowing up because everybody loved Sharknado. Austin is recounting all of this from the Fake Doctors Real Friends podcast, which he refuses to actually listen to, but when but remembers everything that's said on it when I'm listening to it around I also, him. I remember everything that's said around me. I'm a genius with a perfect memory for stuff. He remembers every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. Parkin' by the lake. 
and there was not another car in sight. Austin has no taste in music. Zero taste in music. That one's Meatloaf, kids, and uh, that's a very PG-13 song. So, who goes first this week? I get to go first this week. All right. And I'm going to start this with a preface. As you may have already heard, I got hit hard by the COVID vaccine. Yes, he was asleep a lot. I even told him yesterday he's like i gotta research i'm like no you gotta go to bed and so i was a drowsy mess and couldn't focus and it shows in my notes because i went back to review what i'd done because i was dreaming about doing this and taking notes <gasps> he didn't and actually none... write anything it's no all... i had to go back it's and read all it. dream memories because some of it didn't make sense it's like wait didn't i read this already so i went back and restarted it and my notes made no sense so I was having to like restart and go back and what? What are you? What are you doing? I'm just trying to see if there's cat hair on your head or if I missed a spot when I was shaving your head. Great. Cat hair. Cat hair. There's cat hair everywhere. Our <laughs> house is cat hair. So yeah, I was like, I was kind of loopy taking notes and like I even like changed topics halfway through and didn't realize it. Oh, Jesus Christ. So this is a mess. It's going to be a little shorter than usual. And buckle up. This reminds me of that time I was teaching. I might have mentioned this on the show before. And halfway through the lesson, I just realized that it wasn't going well. And I said to the kids, this isn't working, is it? And they all said, no, it's really not. And I said, okay, we're going to do something else for the rest of the class. And we will figure, I'm going to figure out a new way to teach this tomorrow. And we, they were like, cool. And you would think this is something that I could like, you know, be interested in and keep talking about. Because I'm going to talk about space again. <laughs> but... They shouldn't, why do they always say space is empty? Why, space isn't empty. We should just, they should call it full of stuff. Full of stuff. We just finished watching Picard. Oh, Picard is so good. So, uh, but this time I'm not talking about NASA and I'm not talking about the Soviet space program and I'm not talking about Elon Musk. He's not talking about anything he wrote these while he was asleep. These are all dream notes. Uh, I'm, Elon Musk wishes he was this cool because I'm going to talk about India's Space Research Organization, or the ISRO, and yes, India has a space program. They actually have an incredibly impressive space program. We never learn a whole lot about India after like the 1800s in school. I okay, I've got a. We only I'll, in school like I only ever really learned about Gandhi. I never learned about Gandhi. I feel like, and we only learned about Gandhi in the context of our civil rights movement. Oh, geez. Yeah. No, we learned a little bit about it when we were talking about like British imperialism, but then they were like, and then that's India. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not India. Yeah, so it's actually, no, we also learned a little bit about it in like world history when they're talking about religions. Like, I like. Oh. I do remember that. I do remember learning that Buddhism started in India. Yes. And, and then, then, and there Buddha was thin. And then when he got moved over to other parts of Asia, he kind of became the rotund Buddha that we uh, have today, but you can still find the thin Buddha in India. Yeah. So that's what, that's like, we learned about that. Then we, you know, flash forward a thousand years, a couple thousand years, and we get to Gandhi and then nothing else. So I'm going to talk about it because it's a neat space organization. And uh, much like most things, it got started when the, when the Russians launched Sputnik and India was like, oh, we don't have a space program. And there was one guy who said, hey, why don't we start our own space program? And that name, that man was Vikram Sarabhai. So his, he. Austin's long pause because he was waiting for me to make a Ross Geller reference because he pretends to be, I believe, Phoebe's boy, fake boyfriend, Vikram. Who, if I remember, it was a kite maker. I don't know. We didn't, we should have watched that we as research. Out of our research. But no, he was, he was impressive. First of all, he was the uh, son of a couple of wealthy industrialists who were involved in the uh, Quit India movement, which was the India independence movement. That was like, we want to be completely independent from Britain. None of this, like, 
protectorate bullshit. We want to be our own country. They were involved in that. Kind of like the whole Brexit thing that's going real well for those boomers in Spain right now. <laughs> so well. But no, this actually uh, worked for them. <laughs> he, he actually got his did his graduate work in physics at Cambridge. He studied cosmic rays. And he was the founder of India Space Program and also was a big part of their nuclear program and also was a big patron of the arts and actually founded some dance schools and like art schools for the arts. It's amazing how much dance patrons come up on this show. Yeah. And and like dancers and stuff. He was he was also married to a famous actress and dancer. And so this guy's a real life Tony Stark. Billionaire, playboy, philanthropist, inventor. Followed around by Gwyneth Paltrow, even though everybody wants her to leave. And again, Elon Musk wishes he was this cool. Elon Musk has no wishes because like Mark Zuckerberg, he is a lizard person. Yeah. I'm not in QAnon. I know that's a QAnon thing, but if there were lizard people, it would be Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Yeah. Let me oh, just look at them. Oh, dude. QAnon is weird because it is like the panopticon of conspiracy theories because everything falls under QAnon. And then you say, oh yeah, we believe in this conspiracy theory, but have you heard about this one? And you think, oh, well, I trust them from there from my group. And it's, let's get back on topic. Yes. So uh, Vikram was petitioning the Indian government saying, hey, we need a space program. And so in 1962, they said, yeah, let's start our own space program. And India had a lot going against it for starting a space program, at least kind of on the surface, it looks like they would, because uh, India had only gained independence from Great Britain 10 years before. And as you may have already learned, the British didn't take very kindly to their colonies wanting to be independent. Before they gained independence, there was decades of unrest and just, you know, occupation and bad things happening because the British government were just arresting people left and right who wanted independence. There had been multiple world wars at this point, uh, but by the way, uh, some of it was even fought in India against Japan. So, you know, they had been on the front of World War II, which we don't really learn about. And they were also the largest volunteer army in history. Yeah, we, it's never mentioned that India was involved with any of this. Yeah. Not in, not in our schools. We know it happened. And then... Um, following them getting independence, there was also a long and still to an extent ongoing border dispute between India and Pakistan, who used to mm -hmm. be one country. But then the British were like, OK, we're giving you independence, but uh, we're going to divide it up roughly on religious lines, but not exactly with a hastily drawn line. And India and Pakistan are still in dispute over the Kashmir region. Mm -hmm. But so it's. You know, we think not great. And on top of that, because they were ruled by an imperial power for a long time, they didn't have a great industrial infrastructure because it was basically, OK, we are going to take natural resources from your country for our manufacturing, and we're also going to tax you heavily, none of which will benefit you. So they'd been dealing with that for hundreds of years. And also, India didn't have the just so many... Former Nazi rocket scientists that uh, got more or less kidnapped by the Americans and the Russians at the end of World <laughs> War II. Mm -hmm. So you think, how? why are they starting a space program? They don't have the stuff that you normally associate with it, like the big heavy industry, like, you know, all of this stuff. I mean, they do now. They do now. But back in like 1962, not as much. But it also had a lot going for it. First of all, this was a new-ish government. So there wasn't all of the, like, you know, oh, no, we need to do this, we need to do that. That's They had a little bit more wiggle room to decide, hey, what do we want our thing to be? And here is this son of wealthy industrialists saying we need a space program, and he was able to use that clout to start a space program to an extent. And second of all, India is close to the equator. They have a huge geographic advantage over the uh, Europe, the USSR, and the United States because it's actually easier to launch rockets from the equator. Mm-hmm. Now, is that why we launch things from Florida? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, okay. So when you're launching a rocket, going up is important. What? 
but not as important as going really, really fast. <laughs> that sounds like like some kind of triathlon made up by third graders. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to jump and then we're going to run. So going up is important, but not as important as going really, really fast. Because this is something that not a lot of people will realize, but the International Space Station, they are not like in zero gravity. They are in free fall. Mm -hmm. Because if they were suddenly somehow to magically stop and not be turned into paste, they would start feeling Earth's gravity immediately. They'd be able to stand on this space station because gravity is still strong enough. They're in free fall. They are just traveling so fast that they're falling and missing the Earth. That's like a really basic way of explaining it. So the space station is Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, they're falling with style. And so getting going fast is important. And because flat earthers, the Earth is a sphere that what? is spinning. That means... That if you are on the pole, you're not going to be going as fast as someone on the equator because it has it's spinning faster. Mm -hmm. uh, roughly 500 kilometers an hour faster or about 310 miles an hour. So significantly faster. That means you can launch a rocket from the equator with less fuel and just you know, less weight than you can from elsewhere in the world. So, you know. It makes sense that they could be able to have a better, cheaper rocket program and be able to launch stuff more efficiently. And they weren't in an expensive race to put a man on the moon as a big, like, hey, look how great our country is. Capitalism versus communism. We need to win this fight. They weren't doing that. This was a scientific endeavor focusing on improving people's lives. Yeah, it's amazing what gets done when you don't have any political skin in the game. So they weren't throwing money at this problem. They didn't want to throw money at this. They wanted to advance science and improve people's lives. And that means they could let the USSR and the United States do a lot of the expensive pioneering, figure out what worked, what didn't work, and adapt what they were doing for their own purposes. Wait, are you wearing your NASA shirt on purpose? No. <laughs> Austin is legitimately wearing a NASA shirt yeah. right now. Yeah, I'm, here I am talking shit on NASA. <laughs> Hey, and last time you ruined my Jurassic Park uh, commentary while wearing a Jurassic Park shirt. <gasps> my from, now on, you, from now on, you have to wear just plain shirts. I'll wear a plain white tee, then we'll talk about Delilah. Hey there. Hey there. So yeah, so that meant, and also they weren't focusing on manned spaceflight like the United States and the USSR. They were focusing more on communication and reconnaissance. So it was cheaper because they weren't trying to put people in space. They were just trying to put stuff in space, like weather satellites or the communication satellites. And even uh, just for the military, they're trying to make their own GPS system for like, you know, army stuff because, you know, it was still the Cold War. I mean, you got to do a lot of military spending. But yeah, uh, Vikram actually had an idea of like the prototype of the virtual classroom. He thought we could use this as a great educational tool because India didn't have a lot of physical infrastructure built like, you know, power going out to everywhere or electricity or cable or phone lines to a large extent. But satellites can be anywhere without having to build stuff on the ground. And so India's India is massive and has massive and remote rural communities yeah. even to this day. It's got like mountains, forests, hard to get to places, but satellite goes everywhere. So he had envisioned having schools with satellite hookups so you could beam lessons into the schools via the satellite and educate people with satellite television. Kind of like, again, the prototype. But for the how Zoom... would they do that without electricity? Generators. Okay. Yeah. Much easier to get there than like, you know, T1 internet line, which they didn't even have yet. 
Okay. So yeah, just he envisioned this as a great way to bring education, high quality education to the people. Uh, even NASA got involved with this one actually and helped the, the India Space Program out with it, including uh, Werner von Braun, one of the like founders of like rocketry. Yeah. So they did that. And this was a big ask trying to get them to fund this, but it was not very big and it was very doable. Like their annual budget in 2020 was only $2 billion as compared to NASA's- When was Vikram wanting to do the satellite school thing? In the 70s. Vikram's dead now, I'm assuming. He's dead now. Hmm. Yep. And their budget now is $2 billion as compared to NASA's $22 billion. And NASA is underfunded. NASA is underfunded. And again- even currently, it's smaller, and historically, it was much, relatively much smaller than NASA's budget. And uh, their earlier missions were fairly simple. They were just trying to design a payload, specifically prototype satellites, to be launched on from Soviet facilities on Soviet rockets. Because the rocket technology was expensive and still hard to produce, but they were able to say, hey, you're testing rockets. Can we put our payload on one of your rockets you're testing so we can launch it? And they were like, yeah, okay. So they got involved with the Russian program. They also get help from the Americans, and eventually they started developing their own rockets to launch their own payloads. And then eventually the United States and the Soviet Union stopped helping them because they were getting very good at rockets. So then they're developing their more own advanced rockets that are on par with, like, you know, the technology they had. So they advanced very quickly and had excellent technology. And this is amazing. They had an 18-year-long success streak, meaning they would they launched over 100 satellites without a mishap. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. Uh, they are only one, currently one of four organizations engaging in interplanetary missions in the world. Uh, so it's us... India, Russia, and... China. China. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, India. And actually, they had a really big discovery a couple of years ago, because they were a, they were the first people to prove that there was water on the moon. And the way they did it is really clever and completely insane. Dowsing rods. They were actually looking for ghosts. So much better. Oh. Uh, they, um, they crashed a probe into the polar regions of the moon really, really fast on purpose. So like you're saying, it's important to go really, really fast. Really, really fast. Basically, they engineered a meteor strike on the moon. I feel like this is how the third grade triathlon would end. That's why yes. That's why the, the third the third thing never happens, because third things they just never crashed. They crashed. So it was a planned impact meant to shoot debris up into the, not the air, because there's not air, but up above the moon, where they were able to photograph it and analyze these photographs and determine the chemical makeup of it and determine that there was in fact water based on the refraction of light from this dust plume. So instead of trying to land an expensive rover that can only test a limited area and move slowly and would have been difficult to operate, they just said, hey, we can determine the contents of stuff based on these photographs. We can crash something into the moon and have a satellite set up at that time to catch this plume against something and we can analyze it to see what is in it. And they were they able to prove very cheaply and easily, well, cheaply by space standards, that yes, there is water on the moon. Pretty neat. They also currently have an observation satellite in Martian orbit. Uh, they did try to land a, a lander on Mars, but it did crash. One of their very few failures, which, I mean, NASA's crashed lots of robots on Mars. Mm-hmm. This is their first one. and We, ha- we just have got a new robot up on Mars. Yeah, we just landed we? a new one. Yeah, we've got, I think, two in operation 
Three. And then there's the one that died, what, two years ago? And yeah, like, oh, Austin's still not over it. It died the same week my grandpa did, and I feel like those mm. two, like, emotions have gotten intertwined. Yeah, Austin got real weepy when he was yeah. reading about that that poor robot. Oh. So, yeah, they uh, it crashed, but they learned a lot from it, and they know that they'll be able to do better next time. They don't view it as a... Fa- they view it a little bit as a failure, but not a complete failure, because they were able to still learn from this event. So, uh, in 2022... They're actually planning their first manned mission, meaning they'll be the fourth country to have their own manned space mission. So they are right up there and doing great work. And this is way shorter than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So your original plan was just to talk about Vikram. Yeah. And then you got derailed by something. Yeah. Because I think the point ended up just being a brief history of the Indian space program. Yep. Okay. So yeah, welcome to uh, my brain being broken for a weekend. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so that was my little thing on the ISRO. And it a big thing about it is we don't learn about this because we don't learn about non-Western accomplishments in American schools. We do not, no. And it's just, I don't know why. It's so important to learn this stuff, to realize that... Do you really want to get into that discussion? No, I don't. But we could. <laughs> It's important to learn this just to like, humanize. Like last other week, people. we got patriotic for the first time because people were insulting our animals. So we can go the opposite direction and get real unpatriotic this time. Yeah, it's a big problem. Again, we can't talk about the accomplishments of other countries because we have to be the greatest, which is stupid. Yeah, guys, sometimes people are going to be better at stuff than you. And again, we own, and when we do learn about accomplishments, we learn about ancient accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Like in Egypt, they built the pyramids. Or in China, they built the Great Wall, and then nothing happened until America came around. Yep. So, even the same with Greece. It's like, yeah, they invented democracy, but we perfected it, and nothing else. Yes, I was also taught that we invented democracy at one point. And they're like, and then then later, I think it was the same with you, like, and the Greeks invented democracy. We're like, wait, I thought we invented it. No, it's a different thing. It's a different kind of thing. They invented it. We perfect. It's like, no. no. Yeah, and just, I feel like if we learned a bit more about what other countries are doing, like current stuff, it would be more humanizing and you'd even view, view people as people instead of just a textbook line. Yeah, maybe we wouldn't have to be, you know, protesting the way we treat people who are not white. Yeah. Because we learned that they exist and are also humans. That would have been nice. That would have been great. And this is just one small example of shit we should have learned, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. And look, there's our first cuss word of the episode, I believe. Wow, you're fucking right. <laughs> I'm sure we... I'm, that can't possibly be true. We haven't had much to be angry about this episode. No. And plus, we're both we're both tired. So do you, did you remember to write questions? I did write questions. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. I wrote questions. Um <laughs> He does his notes by hand, and he doesn't look like he can read it. Oh, I can read it. So, um, <laughs> are they irrelevant? Will this be on the test? Will it be that Elon Musk was just a <laughs> shitty Ayn Rand fan fiction of Vikram Sharabai? <laughs> Will that be on the test? I don't know if, it'd be more, if that's more insulting to Elon Musk or Ayn Rand. Uh, okay, so cards on the table here. I don't like Elon Musk. As a person, I think he's doing kind of good stuff with, like, some things, but he's a garbage fire of a man. He's a lizard person. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. Will the uh, ISRO's amazing success rate be on the test? No, because it's better than ours. 
Will the fact that the equator moves faster than the poles be on the test? Yeah. And will the very scientific high-speed crash onto the moon be on the test? Yeah, I think so. That's so neat. That's like a great way of like, hey, there's water vapor. And again, it's so clever because that's how we figured out there was water vapor on other planets from like, oh, from other moons based on volcanic eruptions. Like, oh, cool. There's stuff shooting off in the air. And we tell it was in that. And they're like, what if we made stuff shoot up into the air? (laughs) Brilliant. And I love it. And yeah, that is my thing. Super short this week. That was short. So I guess I'll just jump into mine, which is actually shorter than usual as well. So we'll see how much we uh, get off track during this. or oh, We're going to have boy. a short episode. I mean, we can have short episodes every once in a while. We do tend to ramble a lot. This will make up for that one that was almost two hours. Which one? I don't remember anymore. <laughs> but there was one that was almost two hours, I think. No, that was pre-edit. Post-edit, it was only an hour and a half. Yeah, we tend to be between an hour 15 and an hour and a half usually. Yeah. All right. Um. So bringing us down, bringing us down. As you might know. Beverly Cleary died on March 25th of 2021, just 18 days shy of her 105th birthday. So Beverly Cleary, her books aren't the first books I remember reading growing up. I was a big reader from before I can remember, but I remember reading them and I even remember like specific parts of the stories, which is not always the case. Like, oh yeah, I read that. But I remember that Ramona was had to get herself to school one day and she was told you need to leave at either, I can't remember if it was a quarter till or a quarter past. But she was, you know, eight and thought, I don't know what a quarter is. Uh, it must mean 25 because a quarter is 25 cents. And she got to school late and got in trouble. Oh, that's such an under- that's such an easy understanding. Yeah. Like, oh, I see why you misunderstood this. Yeah. And then her, I believe it was her dad sat her down and was like, okay, a quarter is actually one fourth of something. And so it was like... The- I was, um, this was the same time where I was for the first time in my life really struggling with something, which was math. And because I had, I had a terrible math teacher, guys. Like, I'm not even going to pull a punch there. She stood in front of my class and said, it is multiplication. She goes, it's kind of like addition, but not really like two plus two equals four and two times two equals four. So just work from there. That is literally how I was taught multiplication. That's, that's the bad, that's the bad way. That's not a way at all. Um, and so like, I really related to this and I'm like, this makes so much sense. He explained it in such clear ways, but she had also like started to kind of solve the problem on her own, which is the whole point. Um, I remember my grandmother, uh, Wanda read to me the mouse and the motorcycle. Ralph S. Mouse. What did S stand for? I don't remember. Smart. Smart. And I loved that book. And apparently it was the same copy she read to my father. Uh huh. It's like, oh, and it's like. It was so fun, like, having her read that to me, and I loved it. And then I read, like, all the Henry and Ribsy and the Ramona and Beezus. Yeah. And... Yeah, and this is also one of those really good case case studies of, um, even to this day, we have this idea of girl books and boy books, which is actually what I was going to talk about this week. Not that specifically, but, like, how we let kids choose books. We still have the strong belief that there are girl books and boy books, but it's been proven that if you give a kid, a book, regardless of who the main character is, if they can relate to the book, they're going to enjoy it. I related so much to Beezus because, my (laughs) God, I love my sister now, but oh man, she was like peak little sister. It was always Ramona for me. I was a very well-behaved kid, but my brain was like, what 
what Ramona want, was doing was what I wanted to be doing, which is actually, I like, I relate to Beverly Cleary real hard during this whole thing, so just be ready. So Beverly Cleary was born in McMinnville, Oregon, and lived on a farm in a town called Yamhill, which was so small it didn't have a library. Her mom was a teacher and did not like that her small town didn't have a library. So she contacted the Oregon State Library and said, hey, you know, people in small towns like to read. So what can we work out here? So they sent her a collection of books to be housed in a room above the bank as long as she agreed to be the librarian. So in addition to being a school teacher, she was the librarian, meaning Beverly Cleary grew up in this space where it's like books are important. She grew up in a library and she loved books. But then the family moved to Portland and she started school. She didn't attend kindergarten, went straight into first grade. Now, some sources say she didn't learn to read until second or third grade. I find that a little hard to believe because of the way she grew up around books and the fact that she did enjoy them. My guess is that they meant it's more that she didn't read at an acceptable level. Um, And she attended one of those schools that had those grouping systems based on how good kids could read. And I'm using the word inappropriately and purpose. I hate those And how systems. they taught them. She said, quote, the first grade was sorted into three reading groups, bluebirds, redbirds, and blackbirds. I was a blackbird. To be a blackbird was to be disgraced. I wanted to read, but somehow could not. And in other words, she was in the group that was the lowest reading level. And some of the schools I attended as a kid had these, some of them didn't. And I remember at the schools that had them being in, I think it was usually a color, um, being in that group meant you were being whispered about as being the dumb kid. And I don't remember participating in those whispers, but we also remember ourselves better than we were. So maybe I did. But guys, first of all, we need to get rid of those dumbass ways of handling things because schools do still sometimes use them. It's also part of the problem that I've talked about with the uh, leveled reading issues. But also challenges with reading have nothing to do with intelligence. No. Nothing at all. It, um, it sorry it, it as it annoy reading levels annoy me because we'll have like we'll have parents come and say um my child's this reading level and it's like okay cool find a book they like it's like yeah. we don't divide stuff by reading level it's pointless it's stupid it's actually bad and studies have shown this we talked about this already yeah we have um well part of it probably didn't help that she needed glasses oh but her mom refused to let her have them because she wouldn't be as pretty. Now, hopefully, if you're a parent, that sounds horrific and stupid to you. But Austin and I still grew up with by, with that idea of girls who wear glasses are not going to get hit on as much. And apparently that's something our parents were supposed to care about. Yes. Oh, boy. Oh, no. My child is not going to be hit on. Yeah. Boys don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. I remember not from my mother. God, not from my mother. But like in general, hearing that from the world at large. Um. So when I got glasses, people started assuming I was smart <laughs> and it just kind of stuck. And you've listened to this podcast. You probably haven't pictured me wearing glasses because I'm dumb, but <laughs> I'm wearing glasses right now. So yeah, maybe you'll think I'm saying smart had, things. He's had glasses for years longer than I have, but I also have double glasses now. I need reading glasses and faraway glasses. So maybe that's why it's why people just assume I wear them. Well, you so many times I come home and she's got she's wearing glasses with a second pair on her head. And then she comes out and she starts explaining something to me about grammar, waving a stick around at me. Passerbys. Um, anyway, 
And not only that, she remembers her mother drilling her on word charts and insisting to her that reading was fun. Reading is fun. Why aren't you wanting to do this? Why aren't you doing this? And Beverly would sit there and cry and insist that, no, this isn't fun. And it reminds me of trying to do math homework as a kid all the way through eighth grade where I would sit there and literally there would be tears falling on my math homework while I tried to do it because it was so hard for me to do this math. I'm actually good at math now, just like Beverly Cleary clearly became good at reading later. Um, I'm slow at it, but it's I finally had a teacher late, late, way later than I needed who would actually who actually saw, oh, that she's struggling. We didn't realize at the time that part of the struggle was that numbers were moving when I would look at them. Yeah. That Discra- you don't even like realize that until you're an adult because you're talking about it. I realized it. it in high school. Um, and by then it was, not, it, it's not too late to get help as soon as you realize it. But I didn't know there was a word for it. And I think I brought it up to one of my teachers and they're like, no, nah, you're fine. Because I, yeah. I brought up the movement of letters to a teacher. They're like, but you're such a good reader. It's like, I have compensated. Um, anyway, so thankfully, though, my parents never insisted math was supposed to be fun, even though my dad loved, loved, loved math. They never told me what I was supposed to enjoy, which is actually, again, something you're not supposed to do. Don't tell a kid something is going to be fun, because if it's not fun to them, they'll either think I'm wrong and stupid because I'm not having fun or I'm disappointing this grown-up because I'm not having fun, or this grown-up lied to me. So don't say something's going to be fun. Just tell them we're doing a thing. It's not that hard. Um, Anyway, when she finally started to get a grasp on reading, she hated it. No! I no longer wanted to read. It was boring. Most of the stories were simplified, and there was no surprise left, is what she said. The books were all from England with kids who had nannies and ponies and nothing she could relate to. And she couldn't figure out why these authors couldn't write about kids in realistic ways, even referring to the characters as, quote, sissies, (laughs) sissies, <laughs> especially because they never solved their own problems with rich relatives deus ex machinaing their way in at the last second. She also couldn't figure out why these authors couldn't be bothered to put humor in their books. Like, there was just nothing interesting to her. The first book she remembered enjoying, though, was called The Dutch Twins. There are transcripts available online, guys. I'm sure it's actually, I think, I'm not sure if it'll be at your local library, but there are transcripts available on the Gutenberg Project website. Yeah, Project Gutenberg and just uh, archive.org is also another good one. Um, so I glanced it over. I didn't read all of them, but immediately within the first paragraph, there's already humor in it. Um, it's because the characters' names are Kit and Cat. They're twins, which are Kit is Christopher and Cat is Katerina. Because they are not tall enough to have their grown-up names yet. You must be four and a half feet tall before you can pull off the names Katarina and Christopher. And that, yep. ma- that made me chuckle. And I'm like, and that's in the first little section. Um, they had everyday problems and they had to solve them themselves. And one thing that stuck out to me is that the books um, were surprisingly progressive. When the boy says he wants to be a sea captain and the girl says she wants to be a sea captain, too. And I remember this is these books from, I think, like the 1920s or 30s. Uh, he, she says, I want to be a sea captain, too. The boy says girls aren't allowed to be sea captains, which actually was pretty much true at the time, at least, you know, in Western countries. Um, and their grandfather says, you can't tell what a girl may be by the time she's four and a half feet high and is called Katrina. There's no telling what girls will do anyway. That was their grandpa from the 1800s telling him, no, no, no. You don't tell your sister that girls probably, can't do He stuff. probably remembers that pirate queen from 
Um, so the stories, the Dutch twins, I didn't find them especially exciting, at least not through a modern lens, but they are readable. Like even now I'm like, as a kid, I might've enjoyed these. Um, and they are recognizable as stories of real human children. Like you can see kids from the little bit I read still having some of these basic problems, like falling into the water while you're going fishing and having to figure out how to get out. <laughs> like stuff that could happen to anybody. Um, when the other stories that Beverly Cleary wasn't reading, was reading, didn't feel like real human children. So this set her on her way to loving reading. And really, all it takes is finding one right book to get a kid on that path. Which goes back to what Austin was saying was, let the kid pick out the book. Worst case scenario, they pick it up, they read it, they realize they don't like it, they stop reading it. Yeah. And I'm not talking about school assignments, although there should be choice in that as well. But like most kids, I'm going to talk about this at length in other episodes, but most kids pick up a book based on a cover. Like, so if you write children's books or young adults books, your cover's interesting. Like, yeah. I'm going to be reading the book One of Us is Lying sometime soon because the cover interests me and I'm 35 goddamn years old. Um, yeah, there was a book series I read and really liked and I only picked it up because the cover was really shiny. Uh -huh. I was an adult and this was the Molly Moon <laughs> series of books. And it's about a girl who is a hypnotist and an orphan and she hypnotizes her way to being a Broadway star. Wait, why have I not heard about these? Well, let me get these for you. She's got yeah. a pug who's cool. her best friend. Cool. So not only did she become a voracious reader, she began to write. And by the time she was in middle school, she had a teacher tell her that she should grow up to write children's books. Now, fast forward, she went to Chaffee Junior College in Ontario, California to become a children's librarian. She then went on to the University of California at Berkeley, where she was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. but I'm gonna... She didn't think she was going to get in. She got in. And then she was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. So she worked a bunch of odd jobs, like as a seamstress or even a, and even a chambermaid to be, earn her BA in English. And then she went to the University of Washington and got a second bachelor's degree in at their school of librarianship. What the fuck is even a chambermaid? I didn't click on the Wikipedia link, but I'm pretty sure it's like basically what if we were going to think of it, we'd think of it like uh, Downton Abbey style. Okay. Chamber meaning your bedroom. Um. So she got her second bachelor's at the University of Washington, this time in library science, became a children's librarian in Yakima, Washington. Now, while she was at Berkeley, she met her hus eventual husband, Clarence. Uh, her husband's did her parents did not approve of him because he was Catholic. So they eloped in 1940 and moved to Carmel by the Sea, California, because he was in the military. Uh, she worked for a while at a U.S. Army hospital as their librarian and at a bookshop, and then she became a children's librarian again, which is what she wanted to do. And she found the kids would come to her and be like, I don't like books. And she's like, okay, well, what are you looking for? I want a book about a kid like me. And she couldn't recommend them because there weren't any books about kids who were like kids. She couldn't find these books for them to the point where it was, she's a children's librarian. It's time for story time. She didn't get out books and just made up stories. <laughs> It's like, okay, kids, our options are Johnny Tremaine, who is a deformed silversmith. That's it. Yeah. So she instead would make up stories. Like, that's how Henry Huggins came into being. Is she and his dog Ribsy and all this. It was these stories that she would just make up for these kids. And the kids were like enthralled because they'd never heard stories about kids who had the same problems that they had and were solving them without a grown up coming in to fix it for them. Like, so um, eventually she started writing it down. And she didn't, she said that she didn't know how to write books. Like she had no idea what she was doing. She didn't know what the rules were. She didn't ever have training in this. So she just wrote down what she remembered saying. Um, 
her first published story was called The Green Christmas, but it was published under the wrong name. She would later incorporate that into her first published book, uh, The Green Christmas, which came out in 1950 called Henry Huggins. Henry had a dog called Ribsy, originally called Spare Ribs, because that's what she had in her fridge at the time. <laughs> but her publisher was like, um, can we make that more kid-friendly? Because we don't want them to actually think about the fact that dogs have ribs that are similar to the ones you eat. So they named him Ribsy because his, he was skinny and you could see his ribs. Um, he and Henry had a friend named Beezus, and Beezus had a little sister named Ramona. Ramona. And all of them would eventually get their own books or series of books, and the stories were based on children she had met as a librarian, or children she grew up with, and a little bit on herself. And the place they lived on, which was called Kit Kat Street, is a real street in Oregon. Hmm. And she actually would, like, through the end of her life, would go and just visit that street sometimes. She's like, it never changed. Kit Kat Street was always the same. Ramona, the character I remember most clearly, wasn't initially part of the story. Beverly realized all of her characters were only children like her. So she's like, I probably should give someone a sibling so that they have so that kids with siblings have something to relate, relate to. So she just threw in Ramona. And she even named her Ramona because she heard one of her neighbors yelling at someone named Ramona out in the, out in the street. And she goes, <laughs> and Ramona. <laughs> and I do a typing motion. She actually wrote these books by hand. She like my notes. She hated typing. And even once she got older and got a typewriter, she still really hated it. And she also had a cat that owned them and would lie down on her keys. And she's like, why would I use this goddamn thing if my cat's just going to ruin it? <laughs> um, she never got a computer. Even her last book, which was in 1999, and it was a Ramona book, I believe. Um, typewriter. Um, but as time went on, Ramona became kind of her focus. Ramona story, Ramona story kept coming to her. Um, Ramona, she said, was the most like herself, except in mind only. Ramona did the things she thought about while she only thought about doing them when she was a kid, kind of like me. <laughs> One thing that was important to her was that the stories were timeless. She even insisted on this in the in movies and TV shows that would later come out. For instance, the kids don't get to have technology that wouldn't be recognizable in the future. So even now, you know, it's been 60 plus years since these books started. Schools still have clocks. Kids can still look at a clock and be aware that's a clock. They can't necessarily read it. And I fail to see how that's the end of the world, but that's just me. Um, I remember like, reading those books. There was like one like thing they were mentioning it wasn't even a part of the story it's like what is this thing it's like oh that's an old thing we used to do yeah um but for the most part it's things that people recognize like kids know like kids will know what a phone is kids will know what a clock is and it, so it was important to her that they would have technology that would reasonably still be around in the future um so like in the more recent movies they're not going to have like technology that is very flash in the pan they don't they don't wear clothes that wouldn't be worn throughout a lot of period of time like that's why the girls don't all wear little dresses and the boys wear you know like little caps or anything like that like the 1950s <laughs> they are wearing just clothes even if you watch the more recent movies their clothes are very simple because they want it to be something that kids could feasibly be wearing in 20 years um and they didn't use slang that wasn't likely to last so you wouldn't hear you know yolo or fomo in any adaptations gee whiz pops well, you don't really even see that in the books, no. though. She uh, never really, and when she was Sorry, asked, I'm just imagining Ramona yelling out "Yolo," and then she like, would. Yeah, she would. Um, she actually never thought of her stories as happening in, in a certain time, but rather in a certain place. And 11 years ago, when she was asked about this, she said that she would still get letters from kids thinking the books were written recently. So it actually did work. Kids thought the books were about right here, right now. Uh, and this isn't the only type of thing she would insist upon when her books are adapted. She first allowed a book, it didn't say which one, to be adapted to a state to the stage. She went to go see it and found that they had adults playing all the parts. 
just a small adults playing with kids, which is actually incredibly common on stage and on screen yeah, because kids of child are labor expensive. Loss. Um, and so she was really disappointed. And so she doesn't like, that's not a thing that she approves of. And I don't think she even allows stuff to be written anymore or, uh, didn't allow stuff to be written anymore like that. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to TV and film adaptations, she always insisted on having script appro- approval. A lot of companies would come to her and say, we want to adapt this book. And she'd say, okay, um, scre- I need script approval. They'd say no. And she'd be like, all right, peace. She refused unless they gave her script approval. To the point where there was a TV series about Ramona from long, it was in the 90s. And she actually, she's like, I rewrote that script. She was like, and they were very accommodating. And it came out as good as it could have, considering all the circumstances, because they actually ran out of money partway through. And so they kind of just had to do the best they could with what they had. But she was like, but it came out as good as it could have. And they gave me the power I wanted. Um, and then in 20, 2010, there was the movie of Ramona and Beezus. With Joey King as Ramona and Selena Gomez as Beezus. What? I I knew Selena Gomez was in it. I didn't recognize Joey King because obviously she was new to the game then. But we need to watch this. Yeah, we do. Um, and in a meeting with the director, Elizabeth Allen, uh, <clears throat> Beverly asked Elizabeth Allen, what do you think the theme of Ramona and Beezus is? And Allen replied, it's about an iconic... I- it's about this iconoclast who's learning to navigate in society. What? And Beverly apparently like rolled her eyes and said, no, it's about growing up. Keep it simple. That is like, that's what that was her theme of her books was. It's about growing up. It's always about growing up. It's about being a person. You don't need to have this deeper meaning all the time, which is what I, I always, one of the things I always hated when I was learning about, you know, books in school is not everything has a deeper meaning. Sometimes a cigar really is just a cigar, Freud. Yep. Or, or sometimes um, Andrew Lloyd Webber says about the, the musical Cats, it's about cats. It doesn't have a deeper yeah. meaning. It's about cats. Or as I put it to my my mom and brother when they wanted to leave an intermission when I was 12, wait, I think I understand it. They're going to pick someone, kill it, and then everyone's going to be happy about it. And I was right. I still think Cassie had the best description of cats. It's just a bunch of cats dancing around and wasting my time. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, Cassie is like my favorite of all of your friends. Still to this day. Whoa. Yeah, Whoa. We're that's gonna get, right. We're going to get some like... Guys, do not give us lower star reviews based on his reviews of you. <laughs> I love all of you equally. Cassie's my favorite. Uh, I don't think it's Cassie, a real high bar. I don't bar. think Cassie even listens. I don't care. She might eventually. Cassie is like the get of our friends. You need to be like super nice to Cassie. She met Oprah. <laughs> um, so anyway, Beverly Cleary's husband, always very supportive of her career. He ultimately became the person that he would shoot show any manuscripts to before sending them to publishers because she tried to show one of her friends and they were like, oh, yes, they'll be very happy to receive that. And it kind of just felt flippant to her and dismissive. So she was like, no, while her husband was like always super enthusiastic and helpful. And she had writer's block at one point and she was just, you know, throwing a tantrum like I do. And she's like, he's like, why are you working? She goes, I don't have any sharpened pencils. He's like, oh, okay. He went out and bought her a pencil sharpener. <laughs> it's like he understood that that wasn't the real reason. But he was like, if I, if I get rid of these excuses for her, she's going to have to just try to write something. Um, she only, oh, and he died in 2004. Oh. So she was about him for a long time. Um, she'd read and responded to all of, to her fan mail for over 30 years. Like by her, by hand, she would do it. Um, there is even a period in which she and Judy Bloom would have their fan mail mixed up, like sent to each other, <laughs> which apparently they both got a really big kick out of and they wouldn't always realize that it was for the other person until they would start reading it. So <laughs> then they would have to like send it to the other person and be like, sorry. Um, 
She also listened to the kids she worked with at the library. For instance, uh, the book Dear Mr. Henshaw, which is about a kid whose parents are divorced and he's starting to write to his favorite author. It's like, it's like that whole um, storyline on New Girl where he thinks he's writing to, um, oh, I want to say Kiefer Sutherland, but that's not it, uh, who played Batman. Val Kilmer? No. Oh, um, oh God, he was in Birdman. Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, no. Greg Kinnear. No, okay. <laughs> But he thought he was writing to the guy who played Batman, and turns out he wasn't, obviously. George Clooney's nipples. Stop it! Okay. Um, but that's not actually what was happening in this book, but it was because two boys who didn't know each other both asked her if she could write a story about a kid, about a kid whose parents were divorced. So she was like, oh, this is something kids are worried about, so I'm going to write about that. Um, and so writing back, she also wanted the kids to know that she cared. Like, this is a person who cares. She only wrote about her own children once in a book called Mitch and Amy because she was getting tired of them ri- running around and distracting her while she was writing. So she wrote about a pair of twins who were running around and like being, you know, little stinkers. <laughs> it's like, you better stop this. Or I'm going to keep writing about you. Uh, her own twins were named Malcolm and Marianne. And Malcolm later said that the only difference between their childhood and everyone else's was that their mailbox was bigger. <laughs> it's like ever- otherwise he didn't know his mom was like super famous to really to speak of. It's also worth r- noting that she didn't just write for little kids. She wrote young adult novels which I was completely unaware of. Uh, me too. Uh, call, some of them were called 15, The Luckiest Girl and Sister of the Bride. So I need to go read those next. And then some were not about children. She had Ralph S. Mouse, the mouse who rode the motorcycle, which she wrote to try to get her son to enjoy reading. And again, not going to get into all the science, but there actually is evidence that a lot of kids for a, for a certain period of time prefer to read about animals who are trying to solve human-like problems. Also, uh, Ralph S. Mouse, better than Stuart Little. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. much better. Oh, yeah. Um, and then there are just some interesting things about her process. I already mentioned that she hated typewriter typing, so I'm going to skip that. Uh, she never used outlines. Really? Because um, I didn't use an outline for this podcast, and you can tell. Um, see, and I'm the opposite. She said that she's aware that this goes against everything we're taught about writing. It just never worked for her. And she would even write things out of order. She talked about writing the ending of a book first once because that's what was already in her head. And she's like, okay, now how do I need, how do I get there? Um, and I think this is an important thing to note because... Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this in any real depth, but I'm a like my job is a writer and an editor. That's what I do for a living. And I hate outlines. And a major part of my job is writing outlines. Now, when I'm writing them to send someone else, absolutely, I can do it. But when I'm writing something of my own, I always feel like the, it was because of how we were taught it. You know, you write your outline first and then you do your research and then you do your writing. Well, when you're doing your research, you discover these new things, but you're kind of feel like you're stuck with that outline. So you got to turn that outline in, in at the end and you feel like you can't move things around and you feel like you can't change directions when you get a new idea that changes the entire story. So I've always kind of found outlines very limiting. Um so I actually don't outline any of our episodes before I do them. I type them and I change the order around once I am done to make them make sense. See, I kind of like halfway outline mine. It'll be just like <laughs> a list. Then I'll rearrange it and go like and and um, extrapolate and expand. My master's thesis did have an outline, but I had um hun- okay. You want to know how old school I am? You know, people use like um, computer programs to, to keep track of this kind of notes and stuff. I have. I will show you my box of note cards that I wrote by hand. You show me this box of note cards. It is cards. hundreds of note cards categorized by subject, which I still find easier than a lot of these online programs because I am 900 years old. Um, I had an outline for that in the end, but I did a lot of the research first. And because nobody was seeing my outline other than me, I could do whatever I wanted. So this is one of the things we should teach kids how to outline. We should also teach them that there's no one right way to do things. So whether it's, you know, this is 
the most straightforward way to outline, but here are some others. Or this is the way that I do that we can do math, but here's another idea. Or here's a way to develop a character when you're an actor, but there are other ways. Because by God, I got a bad grade in an acting class because the way that we were supposed to create our characters didn't work for me. I couldn't connect with them. And I got a bad grade. I got like a B because I the verb thing didn't work for me. Actors out there will know what I'm talking about. The verbs didn't work for me. I have to go in a different direction. And I was told that, no, the verb thing is the only way. Um. Anyway, so her main thing always was that the kids kids needed to relate to her characters. She wanted kids to hear, le- hear like they were being seen and heard, and she succeeded in many, many ways. It was also really important to her to that she never talked down to her readers. You know the kind of book I'm talking about where you were a kid and you were like, this writer really thinks I'm stupid because I'm a kid and it's very moralistic or like whatever. However, I mean, I do want to just mention not all kids are going to be able to relate to her books. Her books are about middle class white kids for the most part. And not every kid is middle class. Not every kid is white. That's not a slight on Beverly Cleary. She was a middle class white kid who grew into actually a very wealthy, but still lived in a middle class lifestyle white adult. She write wrote what she knew. She didn't try to pretend she knew something she didn't know. Yeah, it, and I guess if she's trying to write something she found relatable, it'd have to be relatable to her and to her experience if she was going to write it authentically, too. Yes. To um, an extent. But so this just goes back to the whole, we need to make sure that we are letting other voices be heard as well. No, it does not mean we need to get rid of Beverly Cleary books. We need to cancel Beverly Cleary. Not at all, because I love her. I think what she did was brilliant. She's just not the only one. There are plenty of writers who are not white, waspy Americans who do the same thing and their voices just aren't heard as much. And I don't feel like Beverly Cleary would be offended by me saying that either because all of her books are still in print after all this time. Most writers, but especially children's writers, can't say that when they've been had their first book come out in 1950 that all of their books are still in print. Uh, Toward the end of her life, she did quit writing. Um, It's not that people didn't want her to keep writing. It's not even that she was too tired. She was like, I'm out of stories and writers should know when to quit. It was never about money. Not once was I'm going to make a lot of money off this book. This is my story. I want to tell the story. She was like, I was out of stories and I didn't want to do it for the wrong reasons. So she stopped. Um, that she won a bunch of awards and that school that put her in the Blackbird group renamed itself after her. <laughs> to which she responded, does it still smell like sawdust floor in there? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you ever walk into one of your old elementary schools, though, you know what she's talking about. The mm-hmm. smell is what gets you first. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's like, oh, this place reeks. <clears throat> and was it always this small? Was like, it always this small? But like, like, have you ever had a smell hit you and all of a sudden yeah. you're in a new place? Like mm-hmm. you... Because smell is like the most tied to memory somehow. But God, if you like, I walked into my, I mean, it's gone now, but one of the elementary schools I used to go to, I walked in, the smell hit me, and I was immediately back in that. It's like disinfectant and gross. This was um, anger and sadness yeah. and crayons. Yeah, and oh man, the ceilings were so low. It was like claustrophobic, even though it was a normal ceiling height. <laughs> Um, as mentioned, Beverly Cleary died on March 25th, 2021, at her retirement community, Stellan Carmel by the sea. Uh, she never left there at the age of 104. By all accounts, she was still with it until the end. She never lost any of it. She would get up in the morning. She would do her crossword puzzles. She would read her books. She would watch CNN. And she really liked writing letters. But she said in an interview back when she was 80, so 25 years ago almost, that there are just fewer and fewer people to write letters to these days. Aww. So I really hope she was still getting fan, fan mail up until the end, at least the, that she would have that. Um, she often said that she had a very lucky life. And as I often like to end these types of stories with a quote from the person, 
she always said that she wrote for the kid she used to be, saying, quote, a rather odd, serious little girl prone to colds who sat in a child's rocking chair with her feet over the hot air outlet of the furnace, reading for hours, seeking laughter in the pages of books while her mother warned her she would ruin her eyes. <laughs> this little girl who remained with me prevents me from writing down to children, from poking fun at my characters, and from writing an adult reminiscence about childhood instead of a book to be enjoyed by children. That is an excellent philosophy to take into writing. That is Beverly Cleary. Uh, she was amazing. I want to reread Mouse on the Motorcycle. And we need to find her, you know, her... She also has two memoirs that, we, that I didn't even mention. Ooh. Like, I didn't go into... There was a lot, guys, I didn't go into. Yeah, and like, you were telling me, it's like, I was... I, I'm not even going to list the awards because there's too many of them. Yeah. Um, but I want to read her young adult books. We'll have to watch the uh, Ramona and Beezus movie later. Yeah, it's got... If it was Selena Gomez... Selena Gomez, right? Selena Gomez and Joey King. Okay, cool. Um, all right, you ready for some questions? I'm ready for some questions. Will this be on the test? Beverly Cleary was in the lowest reading group when she was a kid. Yes. And I think I think so, too, because of the lie we like to tell that Albert Einstein was bad at math to try to encourage mm-hmm. kids to be, you know, you'll be fine. Albert Einstein was also good at math. He was he was fine at math. I don't mm-hmm. know why they make this up. I, we, there's so many weird lies about Einstein out there. I feel like he made most of them up. I'm also not convinced that he and Mark Twain are not the same person. Weird hair. Yeah, and they might see. they might both now be Bernie Sanders. We got a Highlander situation? Like Keanu Reeves is actually Charlemagne? Yes. Okay. Um, Beverly Cleary's goal wa- uh, was for her to write books to be written to reflect kids' lives, teaching them how to solve problems for themselves without talking down to them. You know what? I feel like that definitely should be on the test, but uh, then someone's parents going to get really mad about, no, you need to solve my child problems, child, for them. Uh, she believed humor should be part of books. Yeah. And just generally, if a kid feels they can't relate to a book in some way, they probably won't want to read it. That should, but won't. And that doesn't mean, you know, kids aren't relating to fantasy. There's some aspect of the character, some aspect of the story or aspect of the goal that that's that's what they're relating to. It doesn't mean that they actually think they're in Narnia. Yeah. It's like, I didn't, it's like, I I related so little to Narnia. I hated those books. I've tried like 20 times to read them and I can't do it. It's just like, it's like, it doesn't talk to me on any level. Yeah. But there are a lot of books like I, The Giver, The Giver like hits me right in the gut every time and Austin can't stand it. Yeah. And that's definitely not a realistic fiction kind of book. But I'll get into like the differences between why people pick books later. Um, So yeah, it's shorter episode than usual this week. So, and as one says after it's edited, it might be under an hour. We'll find out. Ooh, that hasn't happened since like the very beginning. Well, we had a twenty-eight second episode not too long ago where you tell people we were uh, get, we were going to be late. Uh, that was a, I believe I referred it to as a whoopsie doodle. Yes. Um. So, where can people find us? Uh, they can find us uh, on Twitter at on the test pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod, on Instagram at on the test pod, and our website on the test and I want to clarify something about my hatred of outlines because I do do this for a living and I don't want people to get the wrong impression. <laughs> um, I think outlines are good for short pieces. I think they can be good for longer pieces. I, I just think that if they're longer, the research needs to be needs to happen before you can finalize the outline. That is what I'm saying. Okay. I'm not saying no screw outlines because I do write them for everything. It's like, no, please. For me, it's like jazz. I go from A to B to C, then back to A again. Yeah. No, for me, it's like... Short pieces, write an outline. Longer pieces, do the research, then write the outline. Where Austin, I don't know how you do it. You do it like simultaneously. And then me, I'm just kind of all over the place with my, but this is for the podcast. If I was yeah. going to be like publishing this. Yeah, oh, no, no. If this, was, if this was for anything that people were taking seriously, 
I might do a better job. Oh God, can you imagine people are taking us seriously? I mean, the research is real. Like the research is. We are not trying. Like we're not making shit up or anything. No, as far as we know. I mean, well, we do. I make things up when she's talking about something she's researched, and I'll just throw in bullshit I'm making up. But usually, we are researching our own facts pretty well. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think that's it. Uh, If you are eligible for your COVID vaccine, please go get it. Help us. It was so easy, so fast, so wonderful. And like and. Most people are not having any kind of severe reaction that's worse than you would get to the flu shot. And don't listen to the goddamn lies that people dying from it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I got the flu after getting the flu shot once. You want to know why? I already had the flu when I got the flu shot. We just didn't know I had the flu. Yeah. And just, yeah, uh, for and of course, for those of you keeping uh, keeping track of this, you know, um, all of the idiots who are talking about how, oh, my gosh, they stole the election. We need to stop counting votes or keep counting votes, depending on what's going on in this state. Just remember that those idiots, once they realized, oh, there's nothing to this, have moved on to trying to discredit the vaccines. So get your goddamn vaccine. Yeah. The more people who get vaccinated, the safer we'll all be. Um, And keep wearing your masks, though, because we still aren't. We don't have a long enough amount of data to prove that you can't sh- that you can't spread it. Mm-hmm. So, um, keep people safe. Keep yourself safe. Yeah. And on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed. And I'm going to keep talking through this, too. So we have a good beginning. And I'm ending. going to play that song. <laughs>